0: Welcome. Thanks for joining me this week. I have a special co-host. It is Sarah Hubbard. Sarah is familiar to a lot of you. She does a lot of great writing for us. I wanted to have her join us this week to talk a little bit about things that she's observing. She's a bit of our policy DC eyes and ears. And so she helps Brent and I really think through some of the DC issues that are on the horizon. So uh, she's wrote a lot of recent articles, backgrounders about some issues. So I want to have her join. So Sarah, thanks for jumping on today.
1: Thanks, David. It's fun to kind of come out from behind the scenes and get to join you on this for the first time. And I just, um, I was in DC last week for the first time since the pandemic. So that was really exciting and tuning in from Northern California right now.
0: And you worked in D.C. for a little while, so you you really understand sort of the the nuances of the city and the politics of situation.
1: Yeah, I was in D.C. for about 10 years, um, working for various ag organizations in communications and policy roles before the West called my husband and I back. And so we're now based in southwest Montana, but are still connected, yeah, to what's going on in the ag world in D.C. So it's nice to kind of have the best of both worlds.
0: Your experience is very unique and your expertise is very unique. And we were talking about the election results three or four months ago. And we were writing those questions, and you were very helpful to helping us write those questions because, of course, even the Senate, the leadership of the Senate came down to a very interesting hairline decision where the Senate was sworn in. But we actually didn't know the outcome of some of those elections. And and some of those people kept their seats. And some of them, the seats were empty. So I always appreciate the nuances that you have for all all the inner workings. Most of the time, it's pretty straightforward. High school civics or college civics can guide you, the guiding principles. But sometimes we have to do some rule interpreting. And so I always enjoy, I always kind of laugh when Brent and I are talking, like, I don't know how that works. We have to talk to Sarah about (laughs) that. And you can either know the rule or find the rule, which, which is great. But-
1: well, yeah, recently... DC has a way of keeping us all on our toes. Like just when we feel like we, we know what to expect, new yeah. Congress, new administration rolls in.
0: <laughs> so you wrote an article for us on the blog, kind of the ag policy watch list, and it coincided with the first 100 days of the new administration. So talk to us a little bit about that. What are some things that you're keeping your eye on that you're watching that you find most interesting?
1: Sure, yeah. I mean, it's hard to believe that it's already past the 100-day mark of the Biden administration, and there's been a lot in the news and in the headlines in terms of what issues are going to be driving the day for ag policy this year and into the next. Well, it's a little bit too early to start talking about the farm bill, although there's already some chatter, right, about that process getting moving soon with hearings and I'm looking ahead uh, to reauthorization before the current bill expires. There's some other topics that have really taken a lot of the attention right off the gate. So obviously COVID and COVID recovery remains a top issue I and mean, one that we've been following really closely on AEI premium, both as it relates to the vaccine, which I know you've talked about a lot on here, David, and how quickly that rollout has gone, but what COVID recovery, you know, means in terms of additional government assistance for producers looking ahead because, you know, we have reached, you know, new highs in that regard over the last year or so. And so there's a lot of questions remain about when that support might start to taper off.
0: A lot of it's just completely unknown, right? We got to predict the virus to predict how the government's going to maybe respond with additional stimulus. So it's definitely uh, unknown. I want to talk a little bit about policy and USDA and the climate change carbon markets. Tell us a little bit about where that's at and maybe a little bit about the role. I, this is putting you on the spot here a little bit. So I don't know if, if this is in your respects, but where the USDA might fall out with some of this carbon market stuff and the role the USDA might have looking down the road.
1: I mean, carbon market, did you have that on your bingo card as like <laughs> the buzzy buzzword of 2021, before <laughs> a few months ago? I don't know who did, but certainly there's been so much interest, excitement, Opportunity to tackle some of the issues that we see with changing climate and those impacts, and USDA Secretary Vilsack, President, have all emphasized how important that's going to be to their administration and you know a top priority in addressing that. So you know USDA has already come out you know asking for public comment about feedback on current conservation programs and where they should head in the future. I think there's so many, it's still very murky, is probably a a fair way to say it in terms of how this all shakes out. You know, there's been legislation in the Senate um, in support of what the USDA has proposed. But then we also have heard from, you know, prominent Republicans who seem pretty firmly opposed to USDA using CCC funds for climate change mitigation incentives. So there's a lot of questions that remain in terms of how. Bipartisan this effort becomes what all is encompassed in in these programs.
0: I think it's interesting how it's playing out a little bit because the USDA in the past has paid producers to pursue practices that I guess were perceived or known to be environmentally positive. So uh, maybe the CRP program, right? Or setbacks or equip some money for equip. And then there was the conservation. I should have looked as Chuck Grassley always supports this program, CSP, I believe it was conservation Mm -hmm. stewardship program, which was paying producers to different programs. Uh, And now sort of this carbon market talk is sort of saying, let's go in and measure some of these behaviors and put a value on what that carbon is. And so there is sort of this interesting tug and pull where I've kind of been wondering, you know, is it possible to maybe get the USDA to support some of these programs on one side, and then you can sell the market on the carbon into the market on the other side? Because there's a little bit of overlap here, right? It's interesting to see how the, how we're going to maybe tangle those or untangle those as those might move forward.
1: Definitely. Yeah, competing in some ways ideas, but then some ideas that aren't necessarily new. Like you said, the CRP and USDA kind of reemphasizing that too over the last few weeks. I'm going to work on an
0: article on that because that's something that we follow from time to time. And I just think it's a little interesting that that is coming back around. And so CRP acreage has been below the cap, the farm bill cap. And as we talk about the next farm bill, I think CRP and some of these bigger programs are going to be back on the table.
1: Yeah. And I would plug too. So Brent did a really in-depth deep dive into current carbon questions and where we stand and, you know, answers that have yet to be found on where all this is headed. So folks might want to take, take a read of that too.
0: He did a great job of sort of framing this up a little bit where you can see some, maybe the collision of where some of these ideas are going to have some struggle. Remind me again, the farm bill expires at the end of
1: 2022? Three. 23. Okay. I, I believe.
0: Okay, yeah, so, yeah it was a 2018. It was 2018. Yeah,
1: it was, right. it was in 2018, which is already a couple years ago. So, yeah, that process will, will kick off soon, you know, with field hearings. We're already seeing you know, some members putting some marker bills out to, to talk about, you know, their priorities headed into that process. But as I'm sure everyone knows, it's a long road to the new farm bill.
0: A year from now, we would expect a few versions of bills floating around, right? So I guess, help me think about the timeline. When should we start to expect to see some of this stuff?
1: Well, I would say within the next year, certainly we're going to see, I I know the last Farm Bill cycle, we saw the chair and ranking members of the, the ag committees hosting field hearings to hear directly from farmers and ag groups. And that was like the initial kickoff to start collecting input. And then kind of at the same time, Back in D.C., you know, the committee and members are working on that bill text. A lot's going to happen in the next year, for sure. There's a lot of questions, you know, that remain about how that process will play out timing wise and what other issues are going to take precedent or take up time and energy on the Hill between now and then. One of them, which I know we'll talk about too, David, is you know infrastructure, right? And you know it's infrastructure week. <laughs> it was kind of a joke during the last administration because it kept kind of the week that never really came. but <laughs> there's been so much talk about the need and an agreement, frankly, for investment in infrastructure, but then the question always becomes how to pay for it and how much is appropriate. And that's how we've seen this tax issue kind of get intertwined into how to uh, invest in our infrastructure. So that is another big question mark and one that we have a couple of questions on AEI premium and AFN um, that we're, we're monitoring as well.
0: I like how you, you tied those together a little bit. There's the infrastructure, which kind of came, this infrastructure spending bill also came with a little bit of a blueprint as to how they would pay for that. And it came in the form of tax increases and maybe on the way we treat capital assets and the appreciation of those values and specifically for ag farmland. So the question that we've raised here a little bit, and I'll read this is what's the probability of the president signing legislation into law that changes the treatment of stepped up bases and reduces the federal estate tax exemption level on or before June 1st, 2022? So Talk to us a little bit about that. I think there's two moving pieces of that question. Share briefly, there's a lot moving there. And we've wrote on the premium side, but also the blog side. So talk to us a little bit about that to encourage readers to dive in.
1: You know, I'm sure as, as folks have probably followed in the news too, there's been a lot of questions and concerns and angst about what the pay for, for, you know, infrastructure might be certainly, you know, President Biden on the campaign trail talked about, you know, some changes to taxes that could be used to pay for that. He most recently, you know, announced a $2.7 trillion infrastructure proposal that would seek to end the practice of a stepping up basis for gains in excess of a million dollars. So the ag community has a lot of concerns about that, obviously, about what that means when farms pass on to the next generation and the tax bill that that would result in. So there's a lot of feedback that the ag community is providing right now to that concept. But we should also keep in mind that that's not the only idea that has been floating around the Hill. The debate, I mean, it's ongoing. That would be my my big takeaway is I think it's something that we need to watch. We know these things. Legislation is a process. It takes a while. So especially in the current environment where we have the very, very narrow margin in the Senate with that tie-breaking vote goes to the Democrats and then a a pretty tight margin in the house as well. So there's a long road to get to either an infrastructure package um, or changes to the tax code as well.
0: So what I really think is important to also keep in mind, you hinted at this is that everything's up in the air. And if you wanted to change the taxes on treatment of farmland, right? There's the step up basis component, there's the inherited estate component, and then there's a the tax rate component. And so... Will all three of those change? Well, that's a pretty high hurdle. But you got to think about those three components there that could adjust. And you got to think about what moving components are. And I think in recently, there's been talks that farmland, you know, passed to the next generation that's going to continue to be farmland might not be subject to that. So a lot of moving pieces here, <laughs> they could change the law, but provide a exemption for farmland, right? Like there's always these, right. all these moving pieces uh, and how that might, that might play out. So a lot to keep our eye on. One other issue that is interesting, kind of lingering from last year. So the first one is antitrust for the livestock mandatory reporting and also mm-hmm. ag workforce issues. We got really close to maybe doing some ag workforce in early 2020 and the pandemic came and we sort of forgot about that. And the livestock marketing resolution text, that's just been on autopilot or you keep punting it. So talk real quickly about those here.
1: I guess starting with ag workforce, I am intrigued to continue to watch how this unfolds because I also think just labor in general and labor shortages and, you know, it's kind of a universal challenge we're seeing across, even beyond agriculture, right? At least in the West, I know it seems like it's it's really hard for small businesses to find enough employees no matter what you do um, or what kind of business you're in. But certainly for ag, it's been a long, long time coming in terms of farmers, Being unable to to find enough workers um, for harvest or in industries like dairy, year round employees. And so we have an H2A guest worker program that's been in place for quite a while, but there are difficulties and issues with that. And, you know, some sectors like dairy can't even get access at all since they are not seasonal. So, on one hand, there's been more, I would say, dialogue and a broader collection of the ag community coming together to work with both Republican and Democrat lawmakers on this bill that passed through the House, the Farm Workforce Modernization Act, it's passed through the House twice. So that by itself is a big deal because we haven't seen that in so long. Just to get that agreement is a big step on this issue that, you know, must be one of the most emotional and like divisive of all policy topics, right? But then the Senate, there's the big question mark of where it goes from here. And I think there's some optimism that with some changes made to the House version of a bill, it could get momentum in the Senate, but TBD.
0: Unemployment rates were really low before the pandemic, and especially in some rural areas. We think about the national unemployment level, but there are some areas in rural ag communities that had rates considerably lower than the historic lows for the national average. So the labor question will continue to be on everyone's mind as we move forward. Sarah, thank you for talking through those. There's a lot of other issues you can you can dial in and read more on, sort of the tip of the iceberg. But let's switch gears just a little bit, and you know what else are you thinking about besides the policy side of things?
1: Well, it's almost summer in Montana, like I said, so that's exciting.
0: <laughs> and, and you were sharing earlier. All the vacationing going on in Montana, you might have an opportunity to Airbnb your car. Tell me a little bit more about that. Oh my (laughs)
1: gosh! Well, we were talking about you know just over the last week. I really feel like the gasoline prices have just been in the headlines and just have exploded. And for those of you who don't know me, after I left DC, uh, my husband and I got an RV and we actually full timed in the RV for about 18 months um, before settling down in Montana. So we were RVers before it was a cool COVID thing. We were just felt crazy, but (laughs) it was great. And so we've actually, you know, we plan to take the RV out again this summer, but it's fascinating because I've been just noticing one gas prices and all of the interest in domestic travel, which started last summer, you know, as folks couldn't travel internationally and everybody you know needs to get out and see their national parks and, and travel in a safe and you know socially distant way it seems like this summer Montana is definitely high up on a lot of folks travel lists so there are no rental cars to be found I believe for most of the summer um, you know in the Bozeman area at least it's gonna be really interesting to see uh, how many folks are on the road. And, you know, on one hand, that's great for local economy and small businesses that missed out a lot last year, but it'll be different. That's for sure. And, and yes, there's you a- actually, yeah, I was gonna say there's actually an app or I don't know if it's an app, but it's a it's a program where you can like, basically Airbnb your car if you have got an extra car, so it might be a nice little A side gig for some Montanans this summer.
0: (laughs) I was traveling last week. I was down in Georgia for some work and I stood in line for three hours to get a rental car. And while I was standing in line, I was looking to see if I could get an Uber or a Lyft and it would just tell you there were no cars available. And then if you wanted to go get a an Uber or Lyft at an an off time in the day, you could get one. But if you wanted to get one around, you know, lunch or in the evening, there were just no cars available. So I was telling folks, it's kind of like demand is 75% of pre-pandemic levels, but the supply of cars or taxis or Ubers or rentals is like 50% of pre-pandemic levels. So there's still a gap there when we may not not be back. But, and I hadn't thought about all the travel, right? People are probably still less likely to travel international, but maybe more comfortable traveling. So that might put a lot more interest in some of the, the national parks and other attractions that are out there. The other thing we were talking about is the gasoline budget, right? So the minimum number of miles you can drive for $100 is getting a lot yeah. smaller as gasoline you know, goes from among the 15-year lows last summer to you know, among the, some of the higher prices we've seen over the last decade. So it's been an interesting adjustment there.
1: Mm-hmm. How quickly things can change, right? That seems to be a theme, like <laughs> in a lot of our writing recently, is the downs, the pendulum.
0: I wrote an article for the premium side this week, and I said a year ago, we wrote almost a year ago to the week, we wrote about low commodity prices after oil trading negative and how that created some headaches, and now it's, are we going to have a headache for? too high of energy prices in the form of gasoline. So yeah, the pendulum is swinging very quickly back and forth. So we'll see how it how it settles out. So Sarah, thanks so much again for joining me today and your continued efforts on an ongoing basis. You're always helping us zero in on new questions and new ideas and helping us sift through all the nuances. So thanks again. And we'll catch you in the future. But in the meantime, for all of our listeners, we'll catch you back in next week. Stay curious. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you.